week of April 25th, 2021. This is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 538, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And at the House of the Dragon, I'm Michael Giltz. Oh, geez. What is this House of Dragon stuff that you're talking about now? Does this have something to do with the Oscars? Because that's all we're talking about today. Oscars, Oscars, Oscars. That's it. Nothing else. It is a prequel to Game of Thrones, the HBO massive blockbuster series. There have been two stealth productions in the last two weeks. Downton Abbey started filming, and then they told the world. And now House of the Dragon, the prequel to Game of Thrones, is in production and filming. So for people who are excited by that, that's big news. Well, I think, uh, you know, Downton Abbey, like I said last week, they had to announce because at at Prince Philip's uh, – uh, you know, funeral, they, they, they decided to use them as extras so that, you know, now the cat was out of the bag. Of course, I'm joking, by the way. <laughs> yes, and it's always, it's always funny to make jokes about funerals. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, you know, it's been a bad week for me. I'm in a bad mood. First, Anderson Cooper is on Jeopardy and he's crushing it. My chances to be on Jeopardy are slipping away. I think Anderson Cooper is, by a factor of 10, been the best guest host so far. He looks like a perfect fit. Uh, and there are other people to come, LeVar Burton, Robin Roberts, uh, uh, Mayim Bialik. I'm, I'm look f- looking forward to see how they all work. But Anderson Cooper right now, uh, he's number one with a bullet. And if that wasn't bad enough, then Bob Costas comes back to HBO Max with his show back on the record with Bob Costas. Similar to his later with Bob Costas that he had in late night TV, he just sits down with a person, a sports figure, an entertainment figure, a political figure, a literary figure, and he interviews them. And I always wanted that show. It's like, you know, Charlie Rose, Bob Costas, they have my job. You know that uh, I I know some people who live in St. Louis who remember little Bobby Costas, who used to go (laughs) on the radio. And he was like, you know, eight years old, 10 years old, 12 years old. And he just knew every single sports fact there was. You couldn't stump him. (laughs) <laughs> like the whole game was he'd go on the radio and you'd try and stump B- Bobby Costas and it just never worked. He, he has got a mind like a steel trap. Well, his success is well earned. And if he was here, he would say, hey, guys, it's time to start talking about the show you're going to do. So Sperling, have at it. Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, it is Oscar time. So, of course, we are joined, as always, by our good friend Ann Thompson from Thompson on Hollywood. Of course, she's the editor-at-large over at IndieWire, and she's here to give us her behind-the-scenes info, the breakdown of who won the Oscars and why, and the predictions for 2022. Hey, you know what? It's never too soon to start campaigning. So, Michael, you know, if you could take out a few billboards on Sunset Boulevard, that would help us out, you know, for next year. Will do. Okay. Well, on Inside Baseball, we'll look at the fall of producer Scott Rudin. We've talked about him in the last two episodes. He's left the Broadway League, and that may well have a serious impact on his ability to actually stage a comeback down the road or even stage a musical or a show. And since Rudin, by the way, is far from the only poisonous figure in theater and the movies, who might be next? Is bullying about to become the next bad behavior to say, me too, or I should say, Hashtag me too. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office around the world. 
Uh, it's for the week of ending April 25th. I almost said we had a link to ComScore in our show notes, but it's not true because their big chart is not back up yet. We have pulled some information from them. Thank you to them for that. But the number one movie around the world is Mortal Kombat. It made another $31 million this week. It opened up overseas previously. It's now at $50 million worldwide. Right behind that is Demon Slayer, the movie Mugen Train. $23 million it made in its opening weekend, mostly here in North America. It's at $450 million worldwide. It's the highest grossing Japanese film in that country. The film in that, not Japanese film, the highest grossing film period in Japan for all time. Now in North America, with $23 million on its opening weekend, it is the highest grossing opening weekend for an international language film, for a movie not in English of all time, almost. Is it being shown in its original Japanese, or is it with subtitles, or is it being was it dubbed? Because, of course, animated films are often dubbed. Well, the trade papers talked about it being the highest grossing film Okay. Well, of well, all time in North America. But my correction was going to be that, in fact, The Passion of the Christ had a bigger opening week, but they keep forgetting that that Mel Gibson film was not in English. Uh, but Demon Slayer, the movie Mugen Train, that's a good question. Was it dubbed where you saw it, folks? Let us know. Yes, you can write to us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter where our handle is at showbizsandbox and where you could have kept up with us during the Oscars. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Now, my daughter mentioned that she wanted to see uh, you know, Mugen Train, Demon Slayer over the weekend. And she's 14. I was like, first of all, how do you even know about this movie? But of course- Does, has, has she watched the show? No. Oh, okay. And, and I can say, thank you, TikTok. Ah, <laughs> well, it would have been, it's like the season finale. You know, the whole season led up to this movie. So it, I don't know if it really tracks for people who haven't been watching the TV show. I think you really feel like, wait, what? What's going on? Uh, the other thing is when I look at the IMDb credits for the film, I don't see any American voices cast. So I believe it was in Japanese and just with subtitles. So good for them. That did set a record, one of the biggest openings of all time, perhaps the second biggest opening, certainly the biggest opening for a movie not starring Mel Gibson, but in a foreign tongue. So Mortal Kombat made $31 million. Demon Slayer, the movie, Mugen Train, made $23 million. Right below that is Godzilla vs. Kong. It made another $17 million this week. It's at $407 million worldwide. Right below that is another, uh, another big movie in China. It's Sister, a drama about a girl who has to decide whether to live her life or take care of her little brother. It made $16 million this week. It's at about $130 million worldwide. Another Chinese film, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Detective Conan, the Scarlet Bullet. That's a Japanese film, isn't it? I believe so. Look, look that up. Make sure I'm right. Detective Conan, the Scarlet Bullet has been playing in Japan and China and made $12 million this week. It's at $50 million worldwide. Two more movies made $6 million. One is The Unholy, a horror faith-based horror film that opened up here a little while ago. It's at $16 million. And then here's our first new movie of the week. In fact, it's our only new movie in the entire chart. It's called, uh, I should have looked this up, Roruni Kenshin, final chapter. Oh, I'm sorry. Roruni Kenshin, final chapter, part one, the final. It has an exceptionally complicated English language translation, which is why I stumbled over. It's Roruni Kenshin, final chapter, part one, the final. So apparently there will be a part two. It made $6 million on its opening week. 
Looking at the trailer, it looks like a guy who's tried to put up his samurai sword, but no, the bad guys just won't let him. He's going to have to go to battle one more time. Then and Detective no- Conan is Japanese, by the way. Thank you. I thought so. Nobody with Bob Odenkirk made $3 million. That's at about $40 million worldwide. August Never Ends is a Chinese drama that's chugging along. It's at just about $10 million. Raya and the Last Dragon passed the $100 million mark. And Monkey King Reborn, The 11th Chapter, and Warrior of China are all Chinese films that are sort of trudging along $2 million, $1 million. None of them is a big player in China. So that means they almost certainly will not translate overseas. Now, with our movie at the top of the charts is Mortal Kombat. That opened in theaters, and it's playing on HBO Max. Sperling, are theater owners sort of settling in and saying, well, this is the new normal, or are they still very much saying, no, 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 don't draw conclusions from this? They're saying don't draw conclusions from this, without a doubt, because literally nothing in their business is normal at all, especially mm-hmm. capacity is you know is limited. Uh, so really, this is all, I, I think... Greg Lemley of Lemley Theaters here in Los Angeles said, this time is like spring training is for baseball. It's just training for when things kind of get back to a normal season. So these are good, these are good numbers. So coming on top, you know, it really feels like given how, you know, how shut down things are, we're still at like 30% in big, some big cities. The whole country is not open. It's like what 50% of theaters overall are open. And a lot of them are at 50% 50% or a 30% capacity. California is going to go up to 75% capacity with no physical distan- distancing for sporting events, concerts, live theater. When is that supposed to happen? I think it's sometime, I don't know, I think sometime in May, right? Uh, yeah, it's very soon, don't you think? Well, June 15th, 17th, somewhere in there is when uh, Gavin Newsom, the our governor here in California, would like to just open everything up, just open the floodgates. How'd that work out for India? Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's like I'm eager to get everything back to normal, but keep a lid on it, you know, get a little more back to normal. There's no wait till the fall, wait till we've got herd immunity for the love of God. Don't just pick a date and stick to it. Say, look, if you want to have this happen, get a jab. You know, that's what you want to be free, get a job. That'll help. That will help everybody. But we want people to stay in business. We want things to open up as they can with distancing and with safety measures in place. And God knows we want people to go back to the movies. June 22nd through the 27th will be cinema week. They're going to say, right. hey, everybody, come back to the movies. There'll be celebs at your local theater. There'll be events. Maybe they'll give away pots and pans like they used to do in the 30s. What's happening? Are people excited by this? Are they like, okay, you, it's a good idea. Let's promote going to the movies. Well, uh, you know, I happen to know uh, Film Frog Marketing, which is behind this. They have been um, uh, trying to put Cinema Week on for, uh, well, they they almost tried at the end of uh, August last year. That would not have worked since. <laughs> no. uh, <laughs> uh, and then they were like, "Oh, let's do it in like February or March." And then, of course, they realized, "Yeah, that's not going to work either." Uh, and so then they they picked June, and it looks like that date is going to stick. And they are trying to get kind of like a big bang, right? Uh, together, that's the the goal. And and you know what? I Celluloid Junkie is a media sponsor of it, uh, so. Just full disclosure there. Oh, uh, oh. We're we're just helping spread the word. I, I didn't know. You know, exhibitors are, uh, the whole goal is to get a string of movies in uh, into theaters and to try and invite 
audiences back and have the studio supported and to have special content in the cinemas rather than just on streaming services. Right. And let people know there are more movies coming out every week after this event. So July and August, September, you want to have movies coming out every week. And going to the movies does seem to be one of the safest things you can do indoors. They've got great filtration systems in all the big major theater chains. You keep your mask on for most of the movie. They're at 50% capacity right now. Uh, Maybe that's going to go up. But so far, we haven't had any big incidents linked to a movie theater, so that's good news. And we, by we have, by no big incident, you mean zero. Zero cases have been well. Uh, yes, but that's no. There's zero cases of a massive super spreader event. It's impossible yes. to say that nobody went to a movie and didn't catch something. You you can't pay, nail everything to a grocery store or a restaurant or a movie. We know if people are out and about, there's more of a chance. And if they all stay home, right. you know, we know there's always some risk. But we've had no big huge problems where you can no. say, oh my God, we we had a we had a Fourth of July party and 50 people came to my house for a picnic and everybody got sick. <laughs> yeah, bad idea. Right. No, but we you know, the one thing, movies. if you want to see a clean environment, go to one of these big, you know, chain movie theaters. You have never seen people clean so stringently. And they all, you want to know the business to be in over the past, uh, I think it was the past probably six months, selling MERS 13 air filters. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Sticky floors are a thing of the past. My God. And so, and so are all white movies. You know, yeah. So Hollywood realized that there's money to be made. The more diverse your films are, the more money you're making. There's a reason Fast and Furious has been such a big thing all over the world. Every year, the UCLA releases its annual report on diversity in Hollywood. Well, diversity on screen rocketed in 2020. They've got all sorts of uh, of, of numbers here. People of color rep about 40% of the U.S. population. And for the first time, their on-screen representation outpaced their portion of the population. So they're 40% of the population, but they're 42% of all leads in the top 185 grossing films of the year. Why didn't they go to 200 or stop at 150? Don't ask me. I don't know. But it's true, and it's great, and it's good. But on the other hand, while their diversity numbers rocketed up in 2020, actual big Hollywood movies plummeted on screen. So there weren't any all the movies that would have taken up the first 20 or 30 or 40, 50 slots would have been big, fat Hollywood movies, and they weren't released by and large. So this isn't a year where you got to put an asterisk by it. Well, we'll see what happens next year. I mean, if if the Oscars are any indication, and not only the Oscars, but the ads shown during the Oscars, it's, you know, I think movies will become a little bit more diverse. And by a little bit, I mean a lot. Ansel Elgort? <laughs> that ain't diverse. He's the star of West Side Story. Oh, I meant the the actual the ads, not 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 trailer ads. I meant actual ads for you know manufactured products, hard goods, cars, what? and okay. Well, what's your salary at at, at, a, at a showbiz sandbox, Berlin? How much do you make every year? Hold on, I'm just gonna uh, scratch. Okay, hold on. Just uh, the okay. I plus four. Wait, ha- wait, if you carry the one, okay, yeah, no, that nah, zero. Zero. Yeah. Hmm. You should be losing more money or you should be suffering a pandemic. At Netflix, Reed Hastings and Ted Sarandos got $4 million raises. Reed got $43 million last year and Ted got $39 million, just under for both of them, like 42.9 or something like that. Uh, NBC's Universal Jeff Shell, he got $16 million last year, but we don't know his salary the year before, so we have nothing to contrast it to. In contrast, Comcast CEO Brian Roberts did take a $33 million pay cut. I'm really stumbling today. He made $32 million last year. He probably feels great. Yes, he took a pay cut. Good for you. 
$32 million, more than anyone needs for an entire lifetime, Brian. Well, and Just Richard Gelfond of yeah. IMAX also got a pay cut over at IMAX. Right, he's seven to six million, I think. Yeah, something, something like that. Like we that. covered we covered that last week. Yeah. Oh, we did. So I, yeah. Okay. Yeah, we we don't want to give him too much grief for taking a pay cut because these other people said, "Ah, I've been so good this pandemic. I deserve a raise." I, I you <laughs> but, know, I found out one of the reasons that uh, Adam Aaron may have gotten a little bit of a bump there on his uh, on his pay over at AMC theaters, and it's not just because he managed to keep AMC out of bankruptcy and kept selling more stock and issuing more stock. It's also because over at Odeon, owned by AMC. Uh, mm-hmm. They've been paying all of their bills, and unlike other exhibitors in the EU territory, don't have any lawsuits pending from <laughs> landlords. Isn't isn't that nice? Well, yeah. yeah, it's a tough time for exhibitors. That's true. Uh, the pandemic is hurting everyone. Broadway wants to come back, but they're talking now, like in the fall, they're putting tickets on sale, and they're looking at returning with four performances a week rather than eight. That reduces their running costs, but of course, it also reduces their ability to make money. And I guess they're looking at four performances a week, probably with 75% capacity is what they're hoping for. But they're thinking slow and steady. We can't get back to a full schedule. We're just going to focus on the days where we make the most money. I'm assuming, you know, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. You know, they're not going to rush back to do Tuesdays and Wednesday nights, you know. So uh, we'll have to see how that works, but it ain't going to be easy. Last week, we made fun of Las Vegas. They have a big EDM concert called the Electric Daisy Carnival. And they said, we're coming back. It's happening any week now. We said, what? Well, it's been canceled or rather pushed back. Like, yeah, no, that's not going to work. We'll be here maybe in October. That seems a lot more realistic, doesn't it? Yes, it does. I mean, I think by October, schools will be in session. I mean, I know I keep getting... uh, emails from my my daughter's uh, school district saying, uh, no, we are coming back. Okay, seriously, we are <laughs> not doing this for another year. We September, August next year, you better get your kids on the school bus because we are going back to school. So I think, yeah, I think by October, hopefully, if, if you know, all, all plays out uh, well, we'll all be doing a little bit more in public. So we'll have to wait for the next Electric Daisy Carnival in Las Vegas, uh, but we won't have to wait for the Academy Awards and to speak to Ann Thompson, Sperling, introducer. Uh, if people don't know Ann Thompson already, then there's really nothing I can do to help them. I mean, then welcome to planet Earth. Really. They have no excuse. Yeah, I mean, editor-at-large at IndieWire, Thompson on Hollywood. Basically, if you are covering the awards circuit or you're interested in awards, you know Ann Thompson. And thank you for joining us every year. It's a ritual. It's I a would ritual dress for the world. Every and, we need yeah. some of our rituals to continue, even if they're on, <laughs> you know, video. <laughs> yes. And it's been 441 days since the last Academy Awards. Thumbs up or thumbs down for the show? Oh, they have to get points for giving one uh, award show at all. You know, I mean, I, it's so easy to 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 dump on them, and I know I'm being slightly kind but but it was a pandemic show there were restrictions there were problems they had to overcome logistical issues i know that they twisted themselves into pretzels now did they make the most entertaining television show no (laughs) (laughs) did they sell the oscar uh purpose in life which is to tell everybody to go back to the movies only mcdormand did that thank god and she always has the last word francis she wins again She's beloved, respected, admired, and goddamn, she had the best quote of the night. Yeah, and that was, uh, well, 
since we're talking about it now, yes, she did have the best quote of the night. Uh, and she when now did she was she a producer on Nomadland? I believe yeah, so she went up twice. Once for her what what, what they switched the order. Let's talk about that. So there, so Soderbergh. Steven Soderbergh, obviously the director, Stacey Sher, the producer who worked with him on Aaron Brockovich and, you know, produced Tarantino and various guises and, and, and the, and Glenn Collins who produced, um, the Grammys, uh, got together. So as I understood it from my reporting, Glenn basically was in charge of the pre-show that many people didn't know existed, but which was actually hugely entertaining. It was one of my favorite things was the pre-show, which had all five of the songs, one live from Iceland, Husvik, and four pre-taped on top of the Academy Museum rooftop. Did you guys watch that? Nope. Nope. <laughs> I had no because And you guys are pretty well informed. I, yeah, I knew I knew what no happened idea. in the I knew it happened in the pre-show and I heard a lot of complaints about that because people said it was actually pretty entertaining. They did it a good was the job. Best thing. I you know what? I sat down in front of my TV. Somebody tipped me something else I didn't know, which was that they had shows beginning at 10 a.m. on all day. There was a there was a pre-show, pre-show, pre-show going on and red carpet and all sorts of fun stuff. And I wa- I sat in front of my TV all day long. Um, but when you got to the actual show, what they did was sacrifice the high production values and sizzle and sparkle yeah. of, of what Glenn Collins produced for this very dour, quaint, kind of intimate um, show that 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 had no comedy bits. I mean, I feel like an old record, like I want it to be the way it was or something. I was happy for them to reinvent the Oscars. That's fine with me. Shuffle the order. Do whatever you want. But if you recognize that you're putting Best Actor and Best Actress at the end after Best Picture, because they're the two high stakes categories that nobody knows the answer to. You have to recognize that maybe Pat Chadwick Boseman was in a position to lose to Anthony Hopkins, who you denied permission to use Zoom from his home in Wales. 83 years old, didn't want to travel to the London hub. Oh, that's terrible. I didn't know that. Yeah, oh. he's not, you know, what isn't widely known is, you know, he is 83. He's not in the best of health. He's not, you know, he seems okay, but he it's seems okay, but in the realm of, of of reasonableness for this guy not to want to schlep uh, to London. And they had prepared for Olivia Coleman to give the acceptance speech, and I don't understand why that didn't happen. That would have been cool, yeah. better than what they did. It felt like a flat souffle at the end. I mean, when Best Director what? was being announced, I turned around. I said, wait a second. Did I miss something here? Because Best Actor and Best actress i thought maybe i had missed it like somehow i fell asleep at the switch. adapted screenplay and original screenplay which you know that's okay but that's usually later in the show then they did a supporting uh category um they must they uh, in my view there's reasons good reasons why the order is what it is and you know i if they they needed to have good reasons for switching it up they wanted people to be not expecting what was happening that that was a big mistake. They presented the whole show as a, a movie, and to be and to be clear, uh, Soderbergh is a director, but he produced the Oscars. It was directed by Glenn Weiss, technically in, in the in the booth. But they had all sorts of cool ideas, and I think most of them didn't work. First of all, not showing clips from movies by and large. You spent much of the night hearing people talking about movies, hearing them chat. Oh, thank you for doing your research, Daniel. Well, yes, thank you for learning your lines, Daniel. It was very good of you. And they're not showing clips from the movies. movies, right? 
crazy. That's the whole point of the show. Promote the movies, especially in a year where people are just able to get back to the movies. And when you're talking about the pandemic and all the restraints put on them, there's no restraint in showing movie clips. (laughs) We saw more footage from next year's nominees, West Side Story, In the Heights, and Summer of Soul than we did of the movies nominated this year. And that's yeah, that's they crazy. Got around to it. I mean, it was like, I remember when animated feature came on. Suddenly there were clips, and I'm like, okay, hello, <laughs> a clip. <laughs> there well, you are. You know, uh, it's it, it's interesting because, as we all know, the Academy was, or the the Oscars were put together to promote movie going. That's they the were. Point. That was the whole point. What to- they were promoting was safety protocols and the <laughs> Academy Museum. Right. And and a viral video, which is not where the money is for the Academy. They don't need viral videos of Glenn Close to promote the Oscars. Now, if you're, if you're going to do a comedy bit, do it early in the show. We don't want to see it 20 minutes before the show is over. I don't care how funny it is or what you thought of it. I, didn't want, I don't want any comedy bit at all. But not philosophically- at that point in the show. It no, should have been do earlier. It- yeah, do it between, you know, cinematography. Trying, you get people to watch, right? Yeah. yeah, and do it between, you know, cinematography and production design and things people aren't as tuned into. You bring in a star and give a little jazzy moment. That's where you put it if you have to have it at all. I think Glenn Weiss knows what he's doing, so I'm going to blame Soderbergh. You should. For, you should, absolutely. Him. Because Questlove, uh, who I adore, of course, I didn't think the music was right on the money at all in terms of the tone, even in the in memoriam section. Oh, and, that was horrible. They were all, and that which was rushed. Um, yeah, I thought, you know, like, is it because of COVID? He died, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Yeah, so it was terrible. And, and, and it just felt like the timing was off in so many different ways. Um, so, uh, <laughs> what about again, the awards themselves? And uh, that, uh, I, uh, all right, just personally, uh, you know, I'm one of those prognosticators and I'm on Gold Derby and everything where there's a little bit of rivalry where, where you want to be the one who, who gets it all right. You know, you want to beat your rivals. Keith Samantha <laughs> won this year. Keith from IMDb. Keith uh, so I, uh, at a certain point in the night, Kyle Buchanan and I, for whatever reason, had very similar ballots. There were just a few categories that you needed to get right. Everyone else knew what the what the favorites were. So you had to get actor, actress, and you had to get all the shorts right, basically. Um, That's where you make the money. Exactly. So I was riding high. I had gotten all the shorts right. Right. (laughs) Oh, "Oh, I'm 15 for 15. I am cruising for a win. And then I lost cinematography and I lost because I thought uh, I thought that uh, uh, Nomadland was going to win cinematography. That was, you know, it it went with the ASC winner, Mank. So that should have been a big shock. there would and have been mm-hmm. actor and actress both. I didn't get those right. That's a shame. You deserve it wait, all. Wait, and who didn't you get? You got cinematography and and then editing. I got wrong because I predicted Trial of the Chicago Seven, which, which won strong. nothing. It won it nothing. Won, it won nothing. It was a huge whiff, which I predicted could happen. Yeah, I did. I thought it would only win one. Right. Yeah. But it showed how little it was the popular front runner, how far ahead Nomadland was, and was, and and why McDormand had to win in a way because you don't have a big popular Best Picture winner like that without it winning a few things. Exactly. And what they didn't win, of course, was the ratings. No surprise to any of us. We predicted, I'm sure, a week or two ago. Do we this know would the be number? yes, we do. It's the lowest rated Oscars ever, of course. Nine point eight five million is the overnight. Uh, it's about sixty percent lower than last year's Oscars. 
which were at a uh, no, it's fifty eight percent of I guess because last year was thirteen point seven million viewers. Uh, oh no, I'm sorry, I'm reading this wrong. I apologize. The average number of viewers was nine point eight five million. That's a thirteen million drop from last year's Oscars, an almost sixty percent drop in the ratings. We all saw that coming. We knew this would be the lowest Oscars ever for a lot of reasons. And it's below 10 million people. Um, and if anybody who tuned in, they started and say, wow, they couldn't call up their friends and say, you sure missed a great night, did they? But you guys are right. I mean, the whole point was to, even if it didn't have good ratings, for those people who saw it, they should be running out to the cinemas, as Francis exhorted them to do, to see all the films. And they just didn't sell the films. And well, they what? needed selling. Yeah, you know, Minari, Nomadland, uh, Sound of Metal—they—they've got a lot of room to grow. And, and let me, uh, what what Frances McDormand did when uh, Best Picture was announced, she said, "One day, very very soon, take everyone you know into a theater, shoulder to shoulder, in that dark space, and watch every film that's represented here tonight." And what really—I mean, granted—I'm a little biased because I cover that industry. They all must have wept. They've put pictures of Francis up on their <laughs> She's walls. Their <laughs> I just couldn't believe that. I mean, are they that concerned about their streaming deals that nobody wants to mention theaters? Like the fact that these people are, they're going bankrupt in their own city and they decided not to do it. It, it's a bizarre kind of tone deafness that I frankly don't understand. It should have been the theme of the night. Yeah, exactly. Just under 30 million people watched last year, and this year it was just under 10 million. And has anyone not figured out that the reason that the buzz on all of these movies was so low was because they didn't get the lift that would have occurred if they had been playing in theaters for weeks and weeks? Exactly. This is the obvious thing that is missing. And if you do the numbers, I, I don't have them off the top of my head, but the amount of money that was lost by the exhibitors is way bigger than the amount of money that was gained by the streamers. There's a big gap between those two numbers. Well, we don't really know how many, we can't judge how many people signed up for a streamer based on, you know, but yes, exactly. there's no, there's no doubt it's money lost and it's money that you're not going right. to make up because people will s subscribe to Netflix anyway. <laughs> I just couldn't believe, I mean, to me, I just kind of thought, wow, you guys are really, it, you, tone deaf is a good word as, or a good phrase, but it just, it just boggles my mind. And I thought that using Union Station, I love Union Station. It is a beautiful art deco palace in, and by palace, I mean building. Uh, it's not a movie theater, obviously. It's a train station, which they decided to close for a month so that they could put on this show. So all of the commuters who have to use it were actually kind of put out a little bit. Is that bit. true? I thought they kept the train part open in the back. They kept it open in the back. For most of that they were, they were inconvenienced. The they were inconvenienced. They weren't, did, not that the trains didn't run, right? right. Yeah, exactly. Well, okay, that's a big difference. The yeah, trains well, okay, ran. fine. But it did. Well, I want to walk through the lobby. They couldn't shut it all down, you know. Yeah. Hey, no more trains. <laughs> no more trains. Just planes and automobiles. Um. So, so but I thought the set looked great. I thought it was beautiful. And, and people are arguing that it wasn't, um, used well or that it didn't show off i thought that as far as art direction goes it was great but the intimacy uh, of the of the the thing i think that was the thing that i'm i loved the red carpet i loved the fashion i loved all the outfits i thought all of that i i, I welcome back with open arms 
but the intimacy of the show itself and the way that everybody was sitting apart from one another and the limitations that were placed on the camera work as a result of that, it made for a very strange, disconnected show. Well, it also didn't help that, and I don't know whose idea this was, I get kind of get why they did it, but I also think it didn't work at all, which is to have the presenters in the audience so that half the audience was turning around and, and looking awkwardly behind them or trying to figure out where they needed to look. It just didn't. There's a reason there's a stage at an award show. It's, uh, you know, we've been doing this for 90 years. It's figure like it they out. They threw out all the stuff that they did learn and, and tried to learn it again. It, you know what? It's a, it's a, it is an asterisk show. It is. Yes. And it's and not it, Hollywood's fault that, that, that these were the films that they were all worthy. They were all good. It's just that the big films got pushed back. Well, let me ask you something. Last year when we spoke, you and I both said, this time next year, we're going to be talking about one movie a lot. We all thought if this movie is even halfway decent, we're going to be talking about In the Heights. And I can't wait to see it. Yeah, I'm still talking about it. Look, great that trailer. That is the first screening, I, the second screening I've been invited to. Um, Ooh, fun. I'm really excited to see it. Now, question. If In the Heights had been released, uh, do you think that in a year when In the Heights and Nomadland are both released, that Nomadland still wins Best Picture? What if the Nazis lost World War I, World War II? Like- here's, what, here's what I said to someone who asked me that question yesterday. I said, there's no question Nomadland would have been a competitive uh, you know, movie in this race. Might have been able to win Best Picture. Might have been able to win Best Director. It would have been in the running, certainly. Um, that one we can be sure of. Yeah, first you got to see In the Heights. Then we'll see where we're at. But yeah, you know, it's a very popular show. It looks like a really popular movie. Can't wait to see it. Also, every every best picture winner is 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 partly due to the zeitgeist. So Nomadland, which I saw twice, first at a screening at Telluride, uh, which was in L.A. at at the Rose Bowl in Pasadena, a drive in. And it was it played really well in that context. Um, And the second they showed a clip from that on the show with Francis talking on the stage. And then um, and then the second one was in my house. And. I wept. I, I responded so deeply to it in, in the context of the pandemic, in the context of our isolation and loneliness. But uh, it, it, I think a lot of people responded to Nomadland in that context. So it's always the year of itself. Exactly. And it was a great year where they really shared out the awards. A lot of movies won two awards, one award, three awards right. for, for Nomadland, really spread the wealth. And then somebody said, well, it's the end of the era of movies sweeping the Oscars. I'm like, every five years, one movie will sweep the Oscars. Exactly. Do you think that, I mean, so did you pick Anthony Hopkins for best actor? I know. No, she- uh, I, I, I picked Ch- Chadwick Boseman, but what happened was that those two races, the two, the actor and actress race were so close and so hard to call that, you know, it was almost like a roll of the dice. So I just took the conservative. I, I see what I did wrong. I'll tell you what I did wrong. Well, I, wait, can I, can I, can I guess as a non expert? Tell me what I did. Okay. Wrong. It's not that, that, that you did anything wrong. Here's what I think <laughs> happened. Riz Ahmed, who was in sound of metal, did a great job in sound of metal was up for best actor as was Chadwick Boseman, Ma Rainey's black bottom. That's the young vote, the young vote. And I think, and, and of course, Anthony Hopkins, Late, late in his career, giving a, a stellar performance, I think that the traditional Academy voters all went with Anthony Hopkins, and then Riz Ahmed 
and and Chadwick Boseman split the vote amongst the new entrants to the academy. And then what wound up happening is Anthony Hopkins got like three more votes than everybody else. Michael, do you have another theory? Well, that's how they go in lockstep. You know, if Viola Davis was going to win, then Chadwick would win. And if it was Frances McDormand, then I'm like, all right, it's Anthony Hopkins. I didn't think it, I don't think it works like that necessarily. Uh, my feeling is that it's more about momentum. And that what I miscalculated was that the two months added on to the race ah. meant that what peaked earlier, there's no question two months ago, Chadwick and Viola would have would have won. And, and, and Viola won SAG, which is why I, I said I was being conservative. Um, and, 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 but Hopkins won BAFTA and BAFTA had a very good track record this year of predicting the Oscars in the end. But you could have it's discounted it and said he's British, right? Or he's he's. Uh, but, the, but the European vote is big. How yeah. is it now? How big is it now? Do so, we know? Well, the whole international is like twenty two percent of the Academy. Interesting. Like two thousand out of nine thousand. Did you think that maybe that would change the best supporting actress, uh, w- uh, the person who won, whose name I will butcher? You uh, can do it. You can do it. Yao Jung Yoon. Yes. Very good. I, I'm much like Brad Pitt. I look like him. I would have butchered the name just like him. Uh, and so do you think that she kind of made this little gaffe when she was giving uh, accepting the award at the BAFTA? She kind of said, oh, the little British, of course, you're so snobby. And she she didn't mean it that way. She meant like, you know, you're very like erudite. And, it was you know, funny. It was yeah, funny. It was, it was a, a delight. Every acceptance speech. Yeah, it wasn't a gaffe. It was, it was the was high fun. point of the Oscars last night. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't Daniel Kaluuya saying, "Look, the reason I'm here is because my mom and dad had sex." The look on his mother's face. I was like, "Oh, you're going to have a lot of explaining to do, Daniel." <laughs> <laughs> she was crying though. I was very moved by her. I love. I, love I thought the, the most moving speech, without a doubt, was Thomas Vinterberg. Well, totally. Sure. Yeah. Because I'm, I did you know he lost his daughter? Well, maybe you yes, did. Anne. Yes, we reported it. We we wrote about it. Mm. That's a heartbreaker. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the big shock of the night for me was Collective winning. You know, you had Collective be nominated in documentary and international film, but then you had another round nominated for director in international film, and they all sort of canceled each other out. I feel like documentary was such a great year. It could have been anything, but you were right to pick uh, my octopus teacher. I didn't think it was going to be nominated because it wasn't the kind of thing that the snobby documentary branch uh, picks. But once it got in, I thought it would win because it was so popular. It just uh, I spoke to too many people who were so moved by it. Now, one thing I, I, I read was that they had a an ASL, a sign language interpreter in the media room. And I thought to myself, wait a second. What? There was no media room per se. There was. There was a media room. So can you explain that? Because normally you're in the media room, in the, in the scrum there, so to speak, because there's two, 300 journalists. But right. I year- love, I mean, when I get to go to the Oscars, of course, that's the favorite thing to do or to walk the red carpet and sit up in the rafters and watch the show live. That's extraordinary. The um, backstage experience is also really cool because you're shoulder to shoulder with all your fellow scribes, everybody in, in black formal wear. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, you're all on deadline and you're hammering away. Uh, and I, I remember one, one time um, 
I, I guess it was the year that uh, uh, No Country for Old Men uh, won. Uh, one of the New York Times reporters was right across from me and, and somebody was giving a speech and he said, which Cohen brother is that? And I said, Joel, you know, <laughs> I know that, but it, it's, it's really fun. Uh, but this was all, uh, horrible. It was like the Globes and all the other ones where they, you know, people were muted and the, the poor talent was standing there waiting for the person to come on audio. And the people who actually gave the questions were, they were lame questions a lot of the time. Um, I mean, one woman, it was horrible. She asked Daniel Kaluuya how it felt to be directed by Regina King. I wanted to die. I wanted to die. And he had the class to say, would you ask that question again? And she did without the uh, incriminating mistake. And and he answered it. But, oof, oof. Yeah. That's unpleasant. So was it pleasant for you? Because when you say there was a media room, it's not like there were reporters there. You are all at it's home. It's kind of Zoom re- media room where you can see all the little heads, and and then there's you 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 activate the big window for who's speaking. And so and how you saw all the reporters on this one Zoom call? People, yeah, there. Wow, were they were they in black tie? <laughs> we were asked to dress appropriately, like business attire. Yeah. And, and so here's a question. I noticed uh, that the Spirit Awards did something very special this year. They actually created tables, even though it was all done on Zoom. That was fun. They actually created fun. tables and you sat at tables with people. The really fun part was the uh, uh, equivalent to what happens at the real spirits when you're all hanging out outside under the, t- the you know, the sun in the sunshine before you get into the tent. Uh, it was it, you, you. They had all these sidebars where you there was a wine bar and there was a karaoke like place. clubhouse clubhouse for award shows yeah yeah and so i i i, I was cruising around all the different sidebars and saying hi carrie putnam hi eric Cohn. you know it's fun is there anything you want to keep from this year's oscars in, in terms of the approach anything uh no (laughs) (laughs) you're like let me let me check my list of no and so next year we'll see we'll see a big showdown between two musicals between west side story and in the heights and and they're gonna have performances and they're gonna go back to comedy but mark my words Mm -hmm. they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna go for they're gonna go so mainstream i mean this couldn't have been less mainstream this was this was heady and it was all about the crafts and i understand that and i approve of it on some level but it ended up being very dull and, and, and you, what i wanted to say was hey you gave uh, awards to the motion picture television fund which is right around the corner from me now let's talk about alan devio where was he when he died and what did he die of uh, <laughs> a couple of people said they tuned out during that section and when that came up the two governors i remembered why they took the governor's awards off the oscars yeah. yes they should have put that in the pre-show. Exactly, in the songs. Nobody knew about the pre-show. And then there was an after party. Did you guys watch the after yeah. party? Yes, I did with Andrew, Andrew Rennell. They immediately mispronounced the white guy's name. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> I had no idea. I mean, I flipped back to the Dodgers game. That oh was even <laughs> it was even even worse than it was pretty ridiculous. <laughs> Who knew? Well, and apparently we know in the future, if you're doing an award show, you don't want it directed by David Lean. No giant wide shots. That's really not a good look, except if you're going to break. 
No, I will agree. I will agree with my with our TV critic who who reviewed the show, who who said this is a television show. <laughs> you gotta you gotta make it a television show. Exactly, that's what it is. Well, and we should mention that we are a podcast, and you have a podcast. Uh, are you taking a few days off now or a few weeks no, off? No, I think we're doing it now. Right after <laughs> you. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Well, I, I, well, then thank you very much for joining us uh, even before your own podcast. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> we won't. And, you know, it's always great to speak with you right after the, the Oscars. It's, well, first of all, it's great to speak with you at any time. And hopefully, if all goes well, we will see each other. On the Quazette. On the Quazette in Cannes. <laughs> <laughs> Fingers crossed. You know, that was nice of Ann to stop. I love talking to Ann Thompson any day of the week, anytime. It's great. It's really great right after the Oscars. And I always, it's one of, it's like Christmas. I look forward to it. Yeah, we should have her on the entire show because I wanted to ask more questions. One thing we didn't talk about, probably because we're just accepted now. After a year or two of streamers being eligible for the Academy Award, you know, even if they do a, a, a theatrical release, it's still a big change to have Netflix with a movie up for best, you know, international film or best feature. Well, they won the most awards. They got the most nominations. Streamers won the most awards. Now, the big studios won the top awards this year. Uh, but that just feels like a matter of time. Uh, so, you know, Netflix is a real player at the Oscars, isn't it? Yes, at least in the technical categories. I mean, when you think about no, best- no, no. I think they're 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 competitor for best picture, best foreign film, best. They won documentary two years in a row. They can win the top awards. It just happened to be that they didn't this year. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely. Well, look, it will happen one day. Uh, soon, might, soon. It might. Ha- yeah, it might be a couple of years off, but we'll see. I don't know. The, the trial of the Chicago 7 could have won. It won the SAG Award. True. You know. Now, as Ann pointed out, it didn't win anything else, so you could see it was a weak candidate. Probably did not have a lot of momentum, but, you know, a movie like that, those are the types of movies Netflix makes. The big studios don't want to make those types of movies too much anymore. So you're going to be seeing streamers dominate the Oscars in the big categories, just like you see streamers and, and premium cable dominate the Emmy Awards. The major networks don't even compete. And that's what we're going to see with the Academy Awards. Do you, do you know why that studios, is? Because they uh, want to make you know, money somewhere else. Yeah, well, the studios will spend, you know, like maybe $8 billion a year on content, uh, on, on making feature films for theaters. But Netflix, on the other hand, will say, I'll see your $8 billion and I'll raise you a ah, cool 10 And they'll spend 17 I don't think with 20 or 30 movies that they hit $8 billion, do they? 20 movies? I was Is there overestimating. Eight? Yeah, you're overestimating what a studio spends. But when you look at Disney, they're spending all this movie on movies and TV and streaming and sports rights. But yeah, Netflix spent $17 billion on content, or they're going to spend $17 billion on content this year in 2021. That includes acquired stuff too, I believe, though, right? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, that stuff is a good business. People say, ah, oh, they're weak. Uh, you know, some of their biggest hits are acquired. It's like, so what? How do you think HBO made its money? How do you think, you know, almost every cable channel you can think of began? They licensed content, then eventually they found their own hits, or they never bothered. They're, you know, turned to classic movies. They just make show old stuff all the time. There's good money in licensed content. Did you know that some of the biggest hits at Odeon or, or AMC Theaters or Cineworld are acquired? They're acquired for, you know, roughly 90 days, and then they give them back. <laughs> exactly. Right. So they spent $12 billion in 2020. What's a down a little bit from 2019 where they spent $14 billion. So you're looking at $14 billion post-pandemic going up to $17 billion. That's not going to last forever, but they are building a massive library of content. 
you know, and you're going to see where it pays off. I will get to that in a minute. But and Netflix added 4 million subscribers. They only expect to add 1 million next quarter. It was lower than they predicted. Uh, they, but however, they beat Wall Street earnings and revenue expectations. And of course, their stock fell. <laughs> yeah. Because nothing quite makes, makes sense. One of the big things they were touting was the increasing popularity in the U.S. of non-English language programming. Uh, so that's cool. Like you see Elite, this fun Spanish show that's really good. Uh, this year, one of their biggest hits is Mexico's Who Killed Sarah? Then there's Spain's Below Zero, South Korea's Space Sweepers, and France's Lupin, which uh, our in-house film critic Aaron Rich watched and said was pretty fun. Uh, and that was bigger than all of them. Netflix doubled its filming footprint in Spain. They have grown from five sound stages to 10 sound stages in Spain where they do a lot of local production like elite. That is a, I don't know where that's filmed. I shouldn't say that, but that's a fun show too, but we have a chart. We've combined the chart for the late March is what we're looking at. The top 10 shows you've got acquired series on top NCIS massive long running show on CBS. You don't think the back end matters anymore. Think of NCIS right below that criminal minds. Another show where you can make a lot of money on the back end. But then we've got an original series, not on Netflix, but Disney Plus. That's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. That's a number three. Then Grey's Anatomy, Coco Melon, Heartland. And then another original series, this time from Netflix, The Irregulars. And then Schitt's Creek, Ginny and Georgia, an original series, Who Killed Sarah, and Gilmore Girls. Now, Gilmore Girls is at number 11. And at number 12 is Supernatural. And number 13 is The Crown. Why am I mentioning these? And number 14 actually is the original I don't know. I ask myself movie. that, I ask myself no, that question about all the time. Okay. Why did I go down from the top 10? Well, because I thought it was interesting that Gilmore Girls is at number 11. Why the heck would it be? Guess what? Netflix made an original series called Ginny and Georgia. It has been pitched and sold and reviewed as a show for fans of Gilmore Girls, of parent-child relationship. It's got that female vibe. It's been very popular. And guess what? They own the library of, they have Gilmore Girls in their library. So when you watch Ginny and Georgia and you enjoy it, Netflix immediately says, hey, do you want to watch or re-watch Gilmore Girls? And people say, yes, it feeds into their library. It feeds into you staying a Netflix customer. They gave you a new show you liked that sent you back to a classic show that they have in their library. And that keeps you very, very happy. And then the next season of Ginny and Georgia will pop up. Uh, Supernatural, that's high on Netflix's list. Why? Because the show just ended its series run. The Crown, that's at number 13. Guess what? The funeral has not happened yet for Prince Philip. I guarantee you, I'm making a bet now. I'm betting that The Crown will jump back up into the top 10 right around the funeral. People who have been talking about The Crown, the young relationship of Elizabeth and Philip, that will draw new people to The Crown. So yes, Netflix is spending a lot of money on content. They're also creating a lot of original content and smartly pairing it sometimes with content that they are licensing. When this slows down five years from now, they're going to have a huge library of content that will keep people very, very happy watching Netflix. They're trying to catch up to what Paramount Plus can offer right off the bat. And I think it's going to pay off long term. Well, if you look at um, some of the shows that Netflix has produced, some of them are shows they've brought back. And uh, uh, what's that show that takes place in San Francisco and had the twins on it? Uh, Full House. If you look at uh, Fuller House, yeah, Fuller House, yeah. If you look, they they saw that Full House was doing incredibly well on their platform on on their streaming service, and they said, you know what? Let's produce kind of a sequel many many years into the future. And they they did Fuller House. So it's all of the that data and analytics that is driving the content decisions. 
By the way, the same thing is going to happen at Disney. The same thing is going to happen at Paramount Plus. Yeah. So six of the top ten movies on the if you break it down by just movies, six of the top ten movies are originals. Four of the top ten shows uh, that are original series. Uh, well, if, no, if you look at all the top series overall, including acquired, four of the top ten are original. You're usually seeing at least half and half, or four, sometimes six when you break it down. So they're making a lot of original content. All the people. Hulu just broke into the top 10 for the first time with one of their original series. It's called Solar Opposites. It's an animated series from the creator of Rick and Morty. So Hulu is also creating great content. And on BritBox, remember, BritBox is not covered by these Nielsen streaming numbers, but they're probably having a great week with Line of Duty. This is one of the biggest hits in the UK ever, this police drama. A recent episode was the most watched drama in the UK since a Christmas Day episode of Doctor Who back in 2008. It's the highest rated episode of a drama in 13 years. It reached 10.9 million viewers and it beat out episodes of Bodyguard and Downton Abbey, which previously had that crown. So that is a big hit show and people are watching it on BritBox. And I can't wait for Nielsen to get access to BritBox and HBO Max and anybody else so we can get great numbers that include all the streaming services. Well, it'll be interesting if that could ever happen. It, it could happen. They just have to say, you know what? The the benefits of being on a top 10 list and all that free promotion are, we're not giving up that much data. You know, we're not really revealing that much. Let's people know. Nielsen ratings, box office grosses, those are to the record sales or streaming numbers for music. Those benefit the record labels, the movie studios, and the TV producers. And the sooner they realize it, the better. Because it's a big deal when you get all that free promotion, and they should take advantage of it. Wait, you mean getting free promotion is a big deal? Indeed. Well, then let me ask you about some of the stories in our Big Deal or Big Whoop segment. Because it's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment, and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story was one of our last stories last week. And <laughs> just like that, the European Super League is, that's right, dead. In one of the biggest sporting debacles in years, although I did watch the Dodger game last night and that was a debacle, let me tell you. <laughs> anyway, I, it, it, this is a huge debacle, this, this Super League thing. It's the biggest sporting mess well, maybe ever, 12 of the biggest soccer clubs in the world grandly announced a new Super League that would bigfoot the entire existing structure of professional soccer. They had no broadcast deal in place. They had no support from most of the players. All they had was the image of billions of dollars dangled in front of them by some bankers. And in this case, it was probably pounds and, and, and probably euros since it was in on the continent, so to speak. Uh, and here's the thing. They announced it, and within 24 hours, it all started to fall apart. The deal was announced very quietly in the dead of night, but the response was kind of immediate and overwhelmingly negative. Fans, former players, sports writers, politicians, pretty much everyone on the planet denounced the Super League in vehement, impassioned terms. People railed, or rallied, I should say. Clubs almost immediately backed out, led by Manchester City. Super League? What's a Super League? I don't know. I'm not a part of the Super League. Are you part of the Super League? I'm not a, I don't know of a Super League. I, I don't know. Did I sign a contract? No, of course not. And just like that, the Super League was over. Big deal or big whoop. 
Well, it's a big deal. It's good that it died so quickly. And in fact, those were not euros or pounds uh, being dangled in front of them. They were dollars because we're looking at American owners and American banks that seem to be the big behind the scenes players. I'm not ah. going to equate. There are plenty of greedy businesses and people in Europe, but this was like the American style of competition coming to Europe. One, this new league they're creating is a direct competitor to the Champions League. It's also a direct competitor to the very heart of what makes soccer special, which is relegation. The idea that if you don't play well, you could fall out of the league and have to fight your way back up. It makes the end of the season exciting. I wish American baseball had it. It's extremely cool. But more importantly, it's unique and it's special. And it's what makes soccer great. And to take that away and say these 12 clubs are going to be safe forever and never have to worry about it. And the big get bigger and fatter and everybody else will have to take our scraps was just completely antithetical to the spirit of soccer and what makes it so much fun. Uh, you know, well, now, the you know, here's the thing. Disaster. Uh, here's the thing. I think that most people, uh, or at least me, learned about relegation by watching Ted Lasso. Because when they kept, I, I couldn't figure out, they kept talking about like, oh my gosh, we have to win this game. Otherwise, we're going to be out of the league. I'm like, no, you don't. You see, what happens is next year you just play again in the league and you try and win as many games as possible. And if you're at the top at the end of the season, you get to do the playoffs. And then after the playoffs, you get to go to the championship. And so then I had to look up, what is this relegation they keep talking about? Well, now I know. Well, that's most people in America, I guess. But if you're a soccer fan in America and there are increasing numbers of them, that's why there's so much money sloshing around. People are watching Premier League and Bundesliga in the United States like never before. It's a huge new market for soccer that's been building and building for many years, thanks to the great success of our female players and then our male players and a growing American soccer league. So it's all fed into that knowledge and experience, and people have become passionate fans, but not just of Man United or the big, fat New York Yankees equivalent in overseas, but people are having fun and picking a smaller league or watching a team in a small because they can access the programming. So they love rooting for the underdog. They love the idea that the little guy could battle their way to the top every season. You know, football and baseball aren't fun when the same teams are competing every year. You want that level playing field so that you don't, you know, you know, spring training. Hey, even the Florida Marlins could win. Anybody could win. You want that sense of excitement or it's no fun. It's no fun if every year the same big teams always win. And I'm a Yankee fan. So I'm glad it happened. It is a populist uprising. It's it's people saying, no, money is not the most important thing. It is about big teams trying to be greedy and take even more money. Uh, keep paying attention because they're going to try and do this again in five years. It seemed like a disastrous failure, but believe me, they're not done trying to take more and more money for themselves. Now, here's a question. You're a Yankees fan. I'm a Yankees fan. What the heck is going on with the Yankees, man? Yeah, they- boy, oh boy. Well, that's great. You know what? They say you don't play well, you suck. You know, we don't have a guaranteed slot into the postseason the way w- we would have in the Super League. We may not make it this year. We don't deserve to make it. But you know what? It's only April. Here's the thing. Uh, are you sitting down, Michael? Uh, no. Should I? Be- because, you know, this story just came in. I've got some bad news. You just switched from cable to YouTube TV. YouTube mm-hmm. TV. That's really hard to say fast, by the way. YouTube TV. Uh, you switched to them, and I was mm-hmm. thinking of switching to them. You use Apple TV in the living room, which has a horrible remote, which was fixed last Tuesday, apparently. And in your mom's bedroom, you are using a Roku stick, which has a much better remote but that remote is about to become useless. Any minute now, YouTube TV may go dark because its owner, Google, and Roku can't come to terms. The big fight is over data, not money. And the, and the way Roku says Google is tilting things in their own favor. Specifically, Roku says 
Google wants to siphon off data and push results in YouTube's favor when people are searching for shows and movies. <sighs> big deal or big whoop? Well, it's a big whoop until the screen goes dark. And so uh, there's not a ton of people on Apple YouTube TV yet, though there I am using YouTube TV. But this is all part of why my dissatisfaction with YouTube TV, the way they do their DVR, which you said, well, it's too expensive to fix. No. They're doing this. Their DVR sucks because they want me to watch TV shows and movies on demand. They don't want me to record stuff and skip over the commercials. They want to push me to on demand because then they make more money. If I don't watch it live, they want to make it hard for me to watch my DVR versions. It's extremely annoying. Every, the, every way they set up their system, the way of recording shows in advance, the way I can't just choose to record new episodes of a show and they make me just take the whole library. You know why they do that? Because they want me to watch stuff on demand. They don't want me to go to my DVR stash and watch episodes and delete them and clear them off. They want to, every time I click on a show, if there's an option, they say, choose a version, hoping I will choose the on-demand version. So uh, if they can, and as soon as they can if you're erase something. For it, do, do they still have commercials? I use a DVR so I don't have to watch commercials. On demand includes commercials. I specifically tape stuff and use a DVR so I can skip through the commercials. They are doing everything they can to make sure that's an unpleasant experience for me. And the stuff I want to watch on uh, when I'm ready, they want to eat substitute as soon as possible an on demand version and take away my DVR version. And even when I'm using the DVR version, they make it hard to do it the way I want. You can't even go and say, okay, I've seen that episode of Judge Judy and clear it away. It's just stays there. So every time I go to watch Jeopardy on, you know, on my DVR, I'm like, wait, did I watch this episode or is that the next? You know, I have to keep guessing and checking and going. Why? Because they only want me to watch stuff on demand where they get to show me more ads. They've made an experience that is not my friendly. It's not user friendly. It's Google friendly. Well, and here's they the thing: do everything uh, they can uh, to make more money, and they want to shove me towards stuff that they have the content for. Everything they do is designed to frustrate and annoy me. They should be offering a better DVR, better recording experience, better live experience than anybody else. And instead, they're making a worse experience. Well, a, a couple things. One, uh, so I have a Roku, and now when I go to the Spectrum app, okay, which is Spectrum is a uh, an internet service provider, a cable provider, just like Comcast, Orange in France, uh, SFR in France, uh, and they that app is if it gets deleted off the Roku, or if I have to get another Roku, I can't download the app again to watch television. Why? Because Roku and Spectrum are in a fight because, of course, Roku wants some of the the ad dollars or the ad time that Spectrum has. And so they're saying, well, yeah, but we, you know, we want want to place ads in the shows that stream over the device, whether we own them or are broadcasting them or not. Now, as far as YouTube, that's just ridiculous. They also want the data, as you're saying, Michael, what right, I would suggest want, about yeah. mm -hmm. YouTube TV. Here's the thing. I think, well, I know a part of this whole pushing you to the on-demand thing for them to have carriage rights, that is part of the contract. Do they want to do that? Not in every single case, but the, well, the every cable. How come every cable company lets their DVR work normally? I, I, I have a deep, they offer a DVR, but they won't let me use it the way every other DVR works. I don't think it has anything to do with carriage rights. If they wanted me to just be able to record a new episode rather than a rerun of Judge Judy, there's no carriage reason that they can't do that. None. There's nothing stopping it's them. It's a from contractual saying, reason. No, it isn't. 
That's no, there's no well, way that's in a contract that says you can't allow people to, you have to let people only record new and reruns of judge Judy. There's no way they have a contract saying you can't allow someone to say, I want to record a single episode of a show off. I want to record Tuesday at four o'clock. I can't do it. I can only record an entire series. And then I ha- if I, if I want to watch 2020, just one episode, I have to watch, I have to record the series watch the episode, and then cancel the entire series. There's no way to say, I want to watch this show, period. You can't do it. That's silly. That is not a carriage ruling. That's them trying to get me to watch a big, fat library of stuff that they have access to. Well, I'm sure somebody listening to this works in this industry, in the in the streaming industry, and may write into us, Dirt and Prove, prove, me, pr- prove me wrong, absolutely. Well, now, speaking of legal issues, where the heck is our in-house lawyer? Perry can Mason. You, Somebody get Perry Mason. Yeah. Can you get them on the phone, Michael? We need an in-house lawyer. Another lawsuit is happening. Usually we kind of wait until things are further along to discuss it. But this is too interesting to pass up. A federal judge refused to dismiss a lawsuit against Apple. He said when a customer purchased a digital song, this is what a judge said, customer purchases a, di- a digital song or movie or TV show, apparently it wasn't crazy of that person for them to assume that they owned it. Because when people quote unquote, buy a song for 99 cents, yes, they can reasonably assume they have actually bought it. Apple says, no, 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 you don't understand. Any reasonable person would read the fine print and after 45 minutes of you know getting through all of that, those terms and disclosures, they would realize they don't own the single Dancing Queen by ABBA, even though they downloaded it and it's on their computer and their phone, and their iPad, and they can play it whenever they want. They've just licensed the ability to access that song until if and when Apple or ABBA decide to take it back. You know, the judge said, um, no, no, that's not, that's not correct. Hey, Amazon, are you listening? Because I'm sure they're coming for you next. Michael, big deal or big whoop? Yeah, and the judge said, no, we're not going to decide that summarily right now. We're going to go to trial. That is an issue worth exploring at trial. I'm not going to say that you are absolutely correct right off the bat. He didn't necessarily rule that Apple was wrong. He just says, yeah, let's take it to court. Uh, this is great. I hope it goes to court. I hope they have a full trial. I hope it goes to the Supreme Court and Apple and Amazon will lose because this has all been BS for decades now. The idea that you can, you're renting stuff and you don't really own it. All those books I own, all that music, all that stuff that's digital, I don't own it. That's crazy. Apple said, hey, what, what damages has he suffered? All his damages are speculative. We haven't taken anything away from him yet. Though stuff has been taken away. How much has he lost over the concern that this stuff might disappear? Guess what? There's a separate lawsuit. Some guy had his Apple ID terminated. We don't know why. Maybe he's a terrible person. I don't know the issue, but we do know he's suing in court because without his Apple ID, he cannot log in and he can't get access to more than $20,000 in digital content. Who the heck spends $20,000 on digital movies and TV shows and music and books? That's a lot of money, buddy. But anyway, there you go. They're saying, you know, he's like, what? I can't get my $20,000 worth of stuff? You know, it's all all BS and needs to be worked out in court. Well, here's another thing that maybe court can solve. It's a familiar story to fans of Showbiz Sandbox. Classic TV shows get stuck in limbo because they can't afford to pay for music rights. That's why all of my TV shows are not on streaming services. Ah. Also, I did star in any TV shows, but that's another story. Uh, Now, here's the thing. Those shows pop up on DVD or streaming, but without the music that helped make the series popular in the first place. 
The New York Times ran a story on this, and they led with one of the most egregious examples. The soapy teen drama Dawson's Creek is streaming on Netflix, but doesn't even include the show's original theme song. I don't want to wait by Paula Cole. That was the name of the song. That's crazy. That's yeah. great. Not having the theme song. I don't want to wait. You know, don't sing it. Come on. Obviously, no, she's uh, so happy. She's so happy. She didn't sue. Oh, okay. Well, it all has to do with budgets, of course. Back in the day, shows paid good money to secure content hit songs for major current, scenes. Current, current, well, current. and hit, well, okay, current hit songs. Sure, just get the current ones. Don't go back. Don't go back into the catalog. Just get the current ones. Pay for them, but only spend enough money to get the rights for a few years. Don't don't spend for a lifetime. For Pete's sake, DVD and syndication was a distant dream. We don't need to worry about those. So why fork over big bucks now? Well, fans hate it, but the problem, that remains. Some shows like Felicity are streaming in butchered fashion. Others simply never get shown at all. Big deal or big whoop. American Dreams, How I Miss You. There's lots of shows that are in limbo because of this. At the very least, I wish we'd become a little more like France. What I wish we'd have a France. I'd like to know when I'm streaming something that it doesn't have the original content. I would like to know that it's been significantly altered. You don't have these songs and music that was used throughout the show. Should be a warning label because I don't want to watch it. You know, the funny thing is Dawson's Mm -hmm. Creek is is the show that is cited as as being the television series that helped bring current hits and create current hits in primetime television where they like would would bring, uh, you know, make make someone a star. Yeah. Well, there's a number of shows. I don't know if Dawson's Creek is the first one, uh, but that's certainly viable. Uh, I know Grey's Anatomy has sold songs for a long, long time. They've been hugely popular at that. Maybe they started after Dawson's Creek. Uh, I know Beverly Hills 90210. They had big songs that they promoted into hits when they were airing. And what they did kind of cleverly, they didn't really, they just had songs on in the background. You know, it was a ballad. Was it wasn't like a creative big song like this was important to the scene. It was just teens at the beach and they'd play a upbeat song, and they would make a hit sometime or they, you know, help it. Now, when they put the show out on DVD, they just said, you know what? We'll license new songs. The people will be so excited to be part of Beverly Hills 90210. They'll pay us to have their song put in the beach scene. So they like made money twice. So they got new artists just again like they did the first time. You know, if that's the decision they want to make, that's okay. But in general, you're watching My So-Called Life, you're watching Freaks and Geeks, you're watching American Dreams, you're watching The Muppet Show, you want to hear the music that was used. So it's a problem. I don't know why the unions cannot come to an understanding. I want everyone to get paid, but the music unions, and those are the people holding this up, I love them, I support them, but no one's winning if the stuff just doesn't get heard. So work it out. Ah, I'm, if I was Lou Wasserman, I'd say I don't play the plum, p- pay the plumber every time I flush the toilet. Oh, <laughs> that's hey, that that was his quote, not mine. Um, okay, Lou, thanks for sharing. Uh, Lou Wasserman, for those who don't know, former head of MCA Records and Universal. But that said, that's very inside baseball, by the way. Mm-hmm. And inside baseball is a segment on our show. It's a segment where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And let me tell you something. You want to talk about a buzzworthy story. This story about Scott Rudin just will not go away. No, Scott Rudin can't even make it go away. It's gotten much bigger. No. First of all, another little bit of news. We had the Golden Globes a few weeks ago. The Hollywood Foreign Press Association expelled a member of their group that approvingly quoted an article calling Black Lives Matter a racist hate group. Apparently, when you're trying to explain to the world why you don't have a single black member, that wasn't a good look. He was <laughs> the president. Of, he, 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 he was former at president. At one time, 
one t- at one time. Yes. Now the person hired by the HFPA to improve diversity has quit. <laughs> and it's longtime PR firm, Sunshine Sachs. It looks like they'll be dumping them too. They're saying, this is not good for our business anymore. Well, it's being too poisonous for us to be associated with them in any way. So the Hollywood Foreign Press Association is still in trouble. Scott Rutten is in trouble. Wait a second. Before you go on, Philip Burton, Mm -hmm. the person they expelled, he's 88 years old. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So It was a personal email. He wasn't sending it out as part of the HFPA, but he is a member. Yes. Right. So God bless him. So producer Scott Rutten, it's two weeks now that we're talking about this. The Hollywood Reporter ran a big story repeating and getting some people on the record for the first time decades-old stories about what an abusive, poisonous, uh, bad boss he is. Not like, oh, he's a jerk, but sending people to the hospital, uh, people with mental health issues because of their dealings with him, people leaving the industry, people having their spirits crushed. Uh, you know, We've known this for years. He's talked about it. He's boasted about it in a way. And now, suddenly, people care because if you want a good work atmosphere and you want to avoid sexual harassment and misconduct, you got to start by having a positive work atmosphere where, no, people don't throw stuff at you. No, they don't push you out of running cars. No, they don't scream at you endlessly from morning to night. This is, this is what the, the bullying equivalent of Me Too. Women like Catherine Deneuve, a great person, sort of rolled her eyes when some younger women were like, I'm not putting up with this. This is ridiculous. And she said, oh, for God's sakes, get a tougher skin. I dealt with it. And she did. But she shouldn't have had to. And now we have young people who are coming into these businesses and are saying, no, no, you're not yelling at me. This is this is not how we do business. We're not accepting this. And you know what Scott Rudin said? Sea change. He said, "Screw you." <laughs> no, he said, "Millennials, you can't work with them." I told you it, that exactly. But, but let people me make run fun through of them, some. But this is really making a change. So here's our story. Yes. So let, do. let's let me run through some of these things. So first of all, Scott Rudin, we we asked, well, okay, he's stepping back from theater, but. Now he's stepping back from film and streaming projects as well as theater. He mentioned theater last week. Now, A24, the movie distributor, uh, has a relationship with Rudin, but not anymore because uh, A24 is ending that. They're removing him from five upcoming film projects. Rudin did Lady Bird with them and Uncut Gems. Both of those projects had major talent like Adam Sandler and Cher Ronan. He's off The Tragedy of Macbeth, a Coen Brothers movie starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand. O- Speaking Oscar of winner. Oscar yeah, winner Francis McDormand. Three-time Oscar winner. Four-time if you count the best picture. But here's the thing. Francis McDormand did not go backstage and do press last night, and some people are saying it's because she didn't want to have to answer questions about Scott Rudin. I don't know if that's really true. But in any case, he's off the film. Uh, Scott Rudin also off the film. Adaptation of The Humans, a play he turned into a Tony and Pulitzer Prize winning hit. But wait, there's more. Barry (laughs) Diller owns a piece of A24. Barry Diller, the the media mogul. And uh, he is a backer of Rudin. So the actions have been taken without any official statement. Here's the thing. Is is this just win- window? Dre- is all this just window dressing? Well, so far it, we thought maybe it seemed like a big deal. It seemed like A twenty four had taken action. Then people were saying, "Yeah, but they're not really spelling out what's going on. They haven't made a public break with Scott Room that we're not working with him anymore. That hasn't happened. Nor do we know what the credits on those films will be. I assume his names will still be on them. He'll certainly make money from them because he helped make them happen. I don't think they can disentangle themselves from him that way." But they certainly don't want him around right now. It's not good for business. And some people said, yeah, you know, Scott Rooney's he's not as powerful as he used to be. That's ridiculous. He has won 17 Tony winner awards. He's an EGOT, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, Tony. Uh, some 
newspaper journalists were framed. We'll never have great works on Broadway again without Scott Rudin. He has To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway, which is a massive popular hit. He had West Side Story just open up before the pandemic. That was looking like a very strong show. And he has the upcoming show, The Music Man, with Hugh Jackman and Sutton Foster, which, of course, he has had to step back from. Those are big, big shows. This is not a guy like Harvey Weinstein who's well past his prime. This is a guy who has is and remains very, very powerful, especially in the theater world. And yet, his weakness is that he has no friends. So, <laughs> yeah, well, that's right? the problem. He, he's been people on the way up, they're more than happy to kick, kick you on the way down. Right, and he mostly picked on weaker people, of course, assistants, underlings, people you can bully and push around, and nobody else is going to speak up about it. Uh, the PGA announced they were going to form a task force to study workplace bullying. Actors and other talent on Broadway had a rally and march saying we got to do something about Scott Rudin and ugly, poisonous workplace atmospheres. Michael Chabon, the Pulitzer Prize winning writer, wrote a very heartfelt piece uh, apologizing. He's saying, look, I knew he was an abusive bastard to his employees. I am paraphrasing. I did nothing for years. I was white. I was male. I had a lot of power. Eventually, I was old enough and had kids that were the same age as the assistants he was bullying, and I did nothing, and that was wrong of me. They worked together many years on trying to turn his novel, The Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, into a movie. Didn't happen, but he dealt with him for many years, long after he knew he should walk away. Rita Wilson, who she married to? Uh, a guy by the name of Hanks, Tom Hanks. Hanks that's right. She, he pushed her around. She says he got pissed when she was diagnosed with breast cancer when they were about to you know, launch a Broadway show. She said he complained that she would want time off during the Tony Awards season, you know, the award season, and he demanded to see her medical records. She said he made her feel like nothing. By the way, so, that is against the law. So well, of course, of course it is. Yeah. Well, he, he didn't, he didn't fire her. You know, he didn't technically, if he didn't fire her, he just was no, but even asking for, for somebody else's medical records. They do not have to share them with you. It's called HIPAA in the United States. You don't have uh, to share. Well, yes, but you, you, you may have to provide some documentation to guarantee that you, you know, you can't say yes. I got cancer and I'm leaving, you know, right. So whatever. So some big people finally are speaking up. He is starting to pay a price. And then Apparently on his own, we haven't heard any reporting saying that something was happening or about to happen. He has stepped down from the Broadway League. Now, most people don't know what the Broadway League is. It's what almost everybody working on Broadway belongs to. It's the Broadway League that negotiates with the dozen plus 17 or 20 unions you got to deal with to put on a Broadway show. You can do it on your own. You don't have to be a member of the Broadway League. But everybody does. It's a lot harder not to. Disney, for a while, they did it on their own. They negotiated their own contracts with everyone. They weren't a part of the Broadway League. They had an entire department devoted just to dealing with unions. That's how complicated and difficult it is. Especially Here's because it's in New York. And let me tell you something. Cross yeah. a union in New York. No, seriously. Cross a union in, in New York. I want to see. Let me know when you do it because we should film it. It would probably make a good show. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, 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 the cradle will rock. Um, so yes, him stepping down from the Broadway League makes any desire for him to come back in six months and say, oh, I've done anger management. I'm happy now. I'll be nice. Uh, that makes it a lot, lot harder and a lot clearer that he's actually paying serious consequences for what he's done. Doesn't mean he can't come back. Doesn't think other things won't happen. He's still going to make money off the projects he had going. But this is this is serious. Per deadline, this is what they said. The implications of Rudin's resignation from the Broadway League could be staggering for the industry, not least on long-held traditions of browbeating, berating, and bullying in the name of artistic temperament. 
Do you expect Rudin to be the solitary or final target of condemnation? End okay, well, let, let's just get it out there, Michael. You're yep. next. You are I next. Am. I yes. am. I am. I'm kind of abusive. I do talk too much, but I've never had any position of power where I could make use of that. But directors, producers, uh, lead actors, uh, you look at the list of people in Hollywood is as long as your arm. Is anyone going to go after Joel Silver? I don't think they care anymore, right? He's not, mm. he's not powerful enough. Here, but here's what I would say. To write for, stories. This, this is big. And I hope it does because you don't need to be an asshole to make a movie. You don't need to treat people like dirt to make a play. Here, here's, here's what I would say. Just remember, everybody in Hollywood, on your way up or if you're already up, today's assistant is tomorrow's studio head. So just keep that in mind. But you know who's no longer the head? Or in our case, podcaster. Yes. <laughs> today's assistant is tomorrow's podcaster. Who's yeah, no well, longer you, here? You know who's no longer actually the head of uh, UTA or United Talent Agency, as I should say, is Marty Bauer. He was the co-founder and really just cool before his time. This guy, I mean, he represented everybody. Well, I meant he was cool because he left agency to become a manager. You know, that's the hot new trend today. You're quitting being an agent and becoming a manager. So he did that long years ago. So he was yeah, cool. Yeah, but he always had the cool directors. Cool. He always had the cool directors. Brian, Brian De Palma, De Palma mm-hmm. Alan Alda. Well, not, you know, Alan Alda as an actor. Marty Bregman Car- uh, for, you know, Carlito's Way fame, you may know. Mm-hmm. You John know, Avelson, just- the director of Rocky. Yeah, you can see how all this group uh, worked together. Marty Bregman produced Dog Day Afternoon, but he also produced Carlito's Way, directed by Brian De Palma, and he produced The Four Seasons, an excellent, a, a lovely film, I should say, directed by Alan Alda. He directed a few movies, and The Four Seasons is his best. So yeah, cool career. Did you ever cross paths with him? Oh yeah, absolutely. No, I mean, everybody knows Marty Bauer, without well, a doubt. I, I did not know the name Charles Fries. Uh, he is a producer of television stuff. He's called the godfather of the TV movie, and he died at the age of 92. He was a major player during the heyday of the TV movie. That's from the late 60s to the late 80s, maybe early 90s. And it's been estimated he oversaw 275 hours of movies and miniseries. Now, that's not a lot. You can do one series and create 200 hours of television. But when you're talking TV movies, they're all from scratch. you know. And he made a lot of stuff. <laughs> he, you know, I looked at his list and I struggled to find something that looked like really good. Uh, he oversaw Paul Raider's remake of Cat People. He did a few movies. And he did do something I liked, the 1970s TV movie and TV series Spider-Man, the live action one starring Nicholas Hammond. That was my first oh, yeah. big exposure to, to Spider-Man. And it wasn't bad. But he did stuff like The Martian Chronicles with Rock Hudson, Flowers in the Attic, uh, the Queen of Mean TV movie with Suzanne Plachette playing Leona Helmsley. If you look at his credits, it's kind of fun. You can just see him saying, yeah, 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 Hatfield McCoys. Let's make a movie about it. All right, all right what about this? Uh, we need an after-school special. All right, over there. We need something uh, for the chicks. I mean, they were just creating stuff left and right. God bless them. So it's a shame to say goodbye to uh, Charles Fry. We have to say goodbye to tra- trailblazing film editor Diane Adler, who died at 92. One of his first jobs was at Civ. That's where she worked, too, but her big show is The Rockford Files. Cult director Monty Helm of Tulane Blacktop died at the age of 91. Uh, That's his big movie. Oscar-winning costume designer Anthony Powell died at 85. He is, of course, related to Sandy Powell. He did stuff like Sunset Boulevard on Broadway with Glenn Close, a 30-, 40-year career on Broadway, and won the Oscar how many times? Three-time Oscar winner for Trials with My Aunt, Death on the Nile, and Tess. Rapper Shock G, a.k.a. Humpty Hump of Digital Underground, he died at 57. Yes, Glenn Close can do the butt, but can't she do the Humpty dance? That's what I want to know. Russ Meyer and burlesque star Tempest Storm dies at 93, one of the great burlesque performers of all time. 
She's in the Burlesque Hall of Fame, and she appeared on Las Vegas for 35 years, mostly as a headliner. She was a friend of Marilyn Monroe and music maestro Jim Steinman. Oh, he died at 73. I could talk for hours about him, but we don't have hours. The show is over. Okay. Well, in, in that case, I, I guess I could tell you that, you know what? You can subscribe to us, and that way you won't miss the next episode. And unlike YouTube TV, most of the podcast aggregators make it easy to subscribe to us. You can do so in iTunes, the over at Google, or Microsoft Marketplace, or whatever they, I don't know what Microsoft calls it now, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can usually find us and you can rate and review our show in any one of those podcast aggregators. It helps us out when you do that, actually. And I'd like to thank our guest, Ann Thompson of IndieWire and Thompson on Hollywood for joining us to discuss the the Oscars, we will place links to her Twitter account and her, her coverage of the Oscars and her blog and her podcast all in our show notes at showbizsandbox.com. You can email us at dirt at showbizsandbox.com, D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail at 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter at showbizsandbox is our handle. Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandbox. Now, here's the thing. All that information, those ways to subscribe to us, and Thompson's information, ways to contact us on our website, showbizsandbox.com. And by the way, the music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. And they have their own website. It is. Who is? MGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's turnaroundbrighteyes.com. I have Good, n- goodbye, no Jim. Goodbye, Jim Steinman. Oh, oh totally yes. cuts to the heart. Turn around, bright eyes. Right, Every now, now and then I fall apart. We're going to get a takedown notice now. Damn Thanks it. a lot. Uh, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Play nice.